This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, March 20th, 2023. Happy spring. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today is International Day of Happiness, an observation created by the United Nations in 2012 to place a focus on the importance happiness has on life. The UN resolution encourages people to make more continuous progress in the small things that continue to make their lives better. Later this hour on Ozarks, Randy Dixon with the Prior Center continues his survey of some past special projects recorded in the KATV collection at the center. First, a few years ago, officials from the city of Fayetteville looked into a stormwater utility fee, and earlier this month, residents in the Upper School Creek area asked about the fee at a stormwater forum. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports stormwater fees are rare in Arkansas, and there are two cities with a stormwater utility in the state. After rainfall rolled through Fayetteville the day before, Michael Cockrum is taking advantage of the sunny day to work on the back patio deck behind his blue house. When I get sick of working in the office, I come over here and pound around. Cockrum is an architect who is adding a house on his lot in the Skull Creek area. This raised concerns in the neighborhood about the building's impact on flooding. Now he works with neighbors on how to manage stormwater runoff on an individual level, like putting in rain gardens. Cockrum's house is about 80 years old. I'm fortunate because this house is raised up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they had it in mind when they built it, but it's high enough that the water can't get into the first floor. I've had water in the basement, which is, you know, really inconvenient, but um, it's not like the people downstream who are really threatened. The city of Fayetteville completed an upper Skull Creek project to manage stormwater and resolved some problems upstream. But some downstream residents are experiencing faster runoff. Cockrum held a stormwater forum with Fayetteville city officials, water experts, and a few neighbors in the area. A resident at the meeting, Molly Saxon, said there was a flooding event this past May, and it happened once before in 2017. And that time it was just inches of water. And there also, there was a, I mean, a, a big log that someone had been using as a bench and it got caught on a bridge two doors up from me. And so that had kind of dammed the water to a higher level. And so I thought, well, that was just kind of an anomaly and that's why that happened. But now I, I just can't really, I can't justify it that way. Saxon says over time, as bigger rain events and more impervious surfaces are in the area, she sees more water. Saxon looked at other options to prevent flooding and bought flood insurance. So I don't know. I mean, honestly, I keep racking my brain talking to different people. Uh, I mean, I've got to to do something. (laughs) The price tag of Fayetteville's documented stormwater problems was $20 million in 2019, according to the University of Arkansas Water Resources Center. Mike Werdeker, Fayetteville City Council member for Ward 2, attended the forum and says he lives near the Skull Creek area. Werdeker says in his role, many residents reach out to him about runoff. In my amateur opinion, stormwater management will be the single greatest issue that could curtail infill development. And that's simply because as weather intensifies, and we know that it is because Fayetteville gets the exact same amount of rain we got in the previous years, we just get it in half the time. The storms are simply more intense. And so this is literally, I think, growing to be the number one concern of Fayetteville residents. 
As the conversation began about what the city has done to manage stormwater, like updating development regulations, and how to get money through grants or loans to carry out larger projects, questions about the city's 2018 flood management and water quality funding study came up. The study recommended a stormwater utility fee, and city officials were considering it a couple of years ago. Out of the state's 500 cities, two cities, Hot Springs and Bryant, have a stormwater utility fee. Denny McFate, Hot Springs Deputy City Manager, says Hot Springs has a history of flooding, and because of the city's population size, it had new federal stormwater discharge mandates to meet in the early 2000s. So we were notified, you know, 2000, early 2002, that we were, had been triggered under those guidelines. And we had to formulate a plan to DEQ on how we were going to meet those six minimum control measures. After the Hot Springs Board of Directors approved the fee, the city was sued. Two city residents challenged the fee, claiming it was a tax and needed voter approval. The Arkansas Supreme Court ruled in favor of Hot Springs being able to implement the fee. You run off on your house, goes to the yard, it goes to the street, it's conveyed down the street, and it discharges in some creek, some stream, some lake. In the same way with businesses, it follows, follows it somewhere into the public system and it's carried away from your property. So that's the service that the courts realized that you were providing and that there were certain uh, capital needs to keep those systems maintained so everybody contributes. Later, an engineering firm conducted an impervious study in the city to compare residential and commercial properties. Based on that study, McFate says Hot Springs has tiered fees on commercial rates and a $4 residential monthly fee. There are about 250 stormwater utilities in the U.S., according to the 2021 Western Kentucky Stormwater Utility Survey. This type of service fee has been litigated in at least 17 states, and the question of if the fee is a tax is the issue most frequently brought up, according to the EPA's guidance for municipal stormwater funding. Fayetteville city officials at the Upper Skull Creek Stormwater Forum say this fee is still being discussed and there are legal concerns and the COVID-19 pandemic slowed the process. Jane Maginaw, Washington County's Extension agent, says this is a new process being developed and there are factors to weigh when it comes to charging a fee fairly. These factors include how a landowner uses their land or including incentives for people who try to manage their runoff. There's just many different types of fee structures that are out there across the United States that are being done. And so what's the right kind for Northwest Arkansas populations? And that's, there's a lot of, lot of variables in there. Maginaw says stormwater regulations are new. And although Fayetteville is an older city in the region, she says each city is dealing with the issue with their own set of challenges. For her, education plays a large role in addressing the problem. And by understanding waterways and watersheds and the protection and the implications downstream of what's happening, I would hope that people might be willing to put in some more voluntary um, resources or be more willing or accepting or understanding of what regulation that's being put in place to help city officials to be able to maintenance what's needed for water quality. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. This is 91.3 KUAF. 
There are multiple ways you can listen to KUAF. You can, of course, listen on your radio by tuning your dial to 91.3. You can go to our website, KUAF.com. We have streams for KUAF, KUAF2, and KUAF3 right there for free. You can also use your iPhone or iPad to download the KUAF app. You can listen to all three streams there on the app. Or you could ask that smart speaker of yours to please play KUAF or please play KUAF2 or please play KUAF3. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville wregional.com slash herhealth to learn more. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Ahead on our show, more travel abroad with archives from the KATV collection at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. People like John and Diane Gill of Little Rock, who are making their second trip to Dornesh. What initially began as an Eastern European getaway for two retired parents of seven has become a second career. When the Gills return to Romania in February, they'll begin an extended stay. Why do you want to do this? I, you mean you observe these children and you don't know? <laughs> it's, it, it's the children. It's, the, it's the, the love of God expressed in these children, through the children, with the children, the, the, uh, the hope that they have for their, ho- their own country. From special reports about Arkansans traveling to post-communist Romania to provide aid to orphans, to an Arkansas native leading a coffee business in Thailand, we hear from past special assignments from producer Randy Dixon. That's in about eight minutes on Ozarks at Large. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, we explore the black diaspora through the lens of rice. Jamaica is a British classist society and food is one of the way in which class is expressed. So if you didn't have rice, something was happening to you. The third installment of our Undisciplined Live series is in the podcast feed now. Listen for free wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. I'm Matthew Moore. Arkansas legislators are away from the state capitol this week, observing spring break. When lawmakers return next week, there are still some big matters to deal with. There are promised bills about prison and sentencing reform yet to be filed, a call for tax cuts that has yet to be formally introduced, and the state's budget will still need to be constructed and approved. State Senator Jimmy Hickey, the chairman of the Senate Revenue and Tax Committee, says there are still some questions connected to the cost of possible prison expansion. The discussions on what the Learns Act could cost or couldn't cost, you know, there's always going to be some unknowns there. Uh, We know that members, you know, are going to want to at least look at tax cuts, Uh, you know, just just things to that nature. Myself personally, you know, I kind of struggle with, uh, uh, you know, where our budget was before COVID, Uh, you know, the increase that that's caused, uh, you know, from our collections. And, you know, so it's just a variety of things that I believe has kind of transpired. Senator Hickey, a Republican from Texarkana, says the initial concentration of the education reform legislation called LEARNS took much of the focus for the first several weeks of the session. Senator Hickey says he expects movement on the budget soon after legislators return. 
so the thing is, is you know, of course, the uh, governor's office, they're, you know, they're, they're new down here. And as far, we've kind of been waiting to see if uh, they were gonna, you know, maybe try to present like a, a new balanced budget. Well, myself and uh, uh, Senator Dismang and Senator Hester, we've, we've been in discussions. After we come back from break, it's gonna be our intent that we're gonna pick up, pick up that and go ahead and develop that uh, whole, uh, get, it get it moving, get that, uh, get that out there online. Of course, we'll have to work with, our, with the House leadership to do that. They'll be right there with us. I'm not saying it's just us. But we're gonna look at that, that from this point, that that's just gonna be, be, we're gonna kinda take that over as our legislative thing to get that pushed on through. Senator Jimmy Hickey made his comments this weekend during a conversation with Roby Brock on the television program, Capital View. Springdale-based Harps Food Stores is growing by one store. The company announced it was purchasing Beechler's Hometown Grocery in Prague, Oklahoma. The store has been locally owned since opening in the mid-1970s. The owner and founder, Keith Beechler, says he's retiring. The store will open under the Harps name next month. Northwest Health Physicians Specialty Hospital and the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences are entering into a co-management agreement for orthopedic services at the hospital. Under the agreement, UAMS will provide leadership in the management of clinical, operational, and administrative services for the Northwest Health Orthopedic Service line. Physicians from both entities will serve on a co-management committee designated to develop, implement, and monitor orthopedic clinical and operational goals. Republican U.S. Congressman French Hill from Arkansas 2nd District says he believes the country will be able to continue to pay for Social Security and Medicare services. In recent months, concerns about the funding of Social Security and Medicare have arisen with lawmakers grappling with how to lower the country's debt. Congressman Hill discussed the matter speaking this weekend with KARK Fox 16 News. Commitments that the U.S. government's made on Medicare and Social Security for our seniors are ironclad. You hear that from as diverse of people as Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Hill said the main issue with funding Medicare and Social Security is the increased cost of medical services. He added, immigration and the formation of families is important because those are ways to add funding to the programs. Social Security is primarily funded through payroll taxes. According to the Social Security Administration, $980 billion was raised in 2021 from payroll taxes that went toward the program. Bentonville ranks high in a new poll for small towns, providing chances to find things to do. The city placed second in this year's USA Today Best Small Towns for Adventure Readers Poll. Savannah, Illinois, on the banks of the Mississippi River, was the only town ranked higher. USA Today highlighted the city's biking trails and nearby lakes as adventure highlights. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team will play in the NCAA tournament's round of 16 for the third consecutive year. The Razorbacks defeated defending national champion Kansas Saturday afternoon to advance to a third straight Sweet 16 for the first time since advancing to four straight Sweet 16s from 1993 through 1996. The Arkansas women's basketball team attempting to get to the NIT round of 16 tonight. Arkansas will host Stephen F. Austin in Bud Walton Arena. The baseball Razorbacks are off to a great SEC start after a three-game sweep of Auburn this weekend at Baum Stadium. The number seven Razorbacks host Southeast Missouri State tomorrow afternoon before heading to number one LSU this weekend. The number 12 Arkansas softball team plays Alabama tonight in the final of a three-game series at 
Tuscaloosa. The teams have split the first two games with Arkansas winning yesterday 5-3. And there is an addition to the Walmart Amp summer concert schedule. Live Nation announced this morning Three Doors Down will perform in Rogers on August 9th with special guest Candlebox. It's 12 noon, just before sunrise at the Arctic Circle. Wind chill factor, I can't describe it, 60 below zero. And everything behind me looks like a big snow field. It's actually water. It's the Arctic Ocean, and I'm standing on it. And you can nine months out of the year. I've heard that cut before, Randy. You have. And every time I hear it, I think, thank goodness I don't live where you can walk on water nine months out of the year. I know. It sounds and, so cold. Well, that's Barrow, Alaska. Well, northernmost point in uh, North America, I believe. He is Randy Dixon. He is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Last week, Randy, we started this uh, sort of adventure through some of the special projects you worked <laughs> of on. Stuff I've done, yeah. Which I find incredibly which interesting. Which I find uncomfortable talking about. I know. But, uh, it was my idea, so we'll just. Leave it at that. But it takes us to other places like Barrow, Alaska. And that was um, sort of an early report on uh, – we didn't call it climate change yet. Right. Uh, global warming. Uh, there were studies being done up there. And uh, our chief meteorologist, Ned Permy, and photographer Larry Potter and I went up there in uh, – January of 1997. I mean, if you're going to go to Barrow, Alaska, why not go in January? Well, right. That's what kind of makes it a story. When right. You can walk outside and throw a glass of water up in the air and it freezes before it hits the ground. Yeah. You know, that's a little trick that we did on camera. But the most interesting part about that trip, which was actually kind of scary, uh, as we were flying up from Nome, uh, the pilot, there was a pilot uh, on the plane, and um, he said, uh, well, what, what are you guys doing up there? And I said, well, we're going to do a series of television reports on uh, weather studies. And um, he said, well, you know, it's dark. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, it's dark most of the time. He said, no, it's dark all the time. It never gets light this time of year. And so suddenly, you know, my career flashed before my eyes, and I thought, we're going to get nothing up here. Fortunately, the sun did come up for about three hours a day. So we would scramble for those three hours to sh shoot good footage. You went to Romania in 1995? Yes, uh, with Chris May and photographer Scott Munsell. And this was an interesting trip. It was um, a religious group called Walk in the Light Ministries, and there were a couple of Arkansans, a retired Arkansas couple, that were going to Romania. And the reason uh, it was important to go there is that after the fall of communism— The Ceausescu yes, regime, yeah. Yes. Uh, all of these state-run orphanages mm -hmm. were pretty much shut down, so there were orphans— homeless all over and we went um it was uh, a little bit of a difficult travel because we flew into vienna and we didn't realize that we were actually going to be carrying supplies the the man um who ran the orphanage 
would buy all of his supplies in Vienna because he it was less expensive there, mm-hmm. and then drive them 23 hours. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and so we actually drove one of the panel vans full of supplies for these orphans. And so in two vans, we started in Vienna and drove through Budapest and then across the Carpathian Mountains and into Romania. And like I say, it was a 23-hour drive that we went pretty much straight through. So that was the way our trip started. And then we lived in an orphanage for a week. Let's, let's listen to this. Okay. You still see them today, living on street corners and in train stations, begging for money, abandoned or abused by their parents, if their parents are even alive. In a simple place where life is uncluttered and horse-drawn carts are as common as automobiles, children are the nation's shame. That fact is not lost on the volunteers here at the Walk in the Light Orphanage in Dornesh, where 60 Romanian children from infants to teenagers have the chance to realize their childhoods. There are literally hundreds of thousands of orphans here in Romania. Many live on the street. Others are in state-run institutions. What makes this orphanage different are the people in charge. People like John and Diane Gill of Little Rock, who are making their second trip to Dornesh. What initially began as an Eastern European getaway for two retired parents of seven has become a second career. When the Gills return to Romania in February, they'll begin an extended stay. Why do you want to do this? Uh, you mean you observe these children and you don't know? <laughs> it's, it, it's the children. It's, the, it's the, the love of God expressed in these children, through the children, with the children. The, the, uh, the hope that they have for their, ho- their own country. Um, and uh, they, they give us more than, than, we take, than we give to them. One of the things I like about that cut is sometimes when you're a reporter or a journalist, you have to ask a question because you want the response. And the question, you know, why are you doing this? And I love the, the fellow's answer. He kind of chuckled. Wait, yeah. you look at the children, you can't what tell? What do you think? Yeah. But you want that answer. Exactly. And, and I will say it doesn't sound like that man was mad. He was just No. Like, no, he wasn't. Yeah. Um, he just – he was going along, right? But Chris was good that way. Yeah, uh, asked the right questions to get the right response. Okay, so the next one. This this is kind of an example of how you can go to do one story and you find another one too. Mm-hmm. So this this is uh, we we went to Florence, Italy, uh, to the campus of. Harding University. There, yeah. Karen Fuller and Tim Hamilton and I went, and um, this is the story we actually went to do. The Harding University campus in Florence is perched atop a small hill in the Tuscany region of Italy. Harding bought the 16th century villa in 1984 from a count who used it as a summer home. Since then, many new families have come and gone with each school semester. Okay, Italy. Not bad. Right, yeah, right, and yeah. it was a good story, but, uh, all right, so this was 1998. Um, you know, last week we talked about going to Bosnia. Right. Well, that conflict was still going on, and there was an air war that had just started that year uh, at Kosovo. And it turns out that the uh, supreme allied commander of NATO 
was General Wesley Clark. A native Arkansan. From Arkansas. That's right. So we had one day off before we flew out. And instead of sightseeing, I thought, well, why don't we just go to Aviano Air Force Base? You know, it's in Italy. Mm -hmm. Can't be too far away. Um, And see what we can get there. So the crew was game. So we get with our translator. We hop in the car. Well, it was a five-hour drive. But we get there and just sort of show up to see what we can get. And I see a CNN satellite truck. So I go and knock on the door and talk to the producer, and they let us use their truck to feed material back to Little Rock. When you say let, I mean free of charge? or Sure. Oh, we okay. were a, a CNN affiliate. I, okay, okay. We had suddenly had this report from Aviano Air Force Base. Nobody knew we were there, and suddenly we're on the air. And I'm sure our competition was a little surprised. But while we were there, we we tried to get uh, General Clark. He was not there at the time, but they were nice enough to set us up with Arkansas airmen who were stationed there from Little Rock Air Force Base. So uh, here's the initial report we sent back to Little Rock. The NATO bombing is now in its 24th day with bombing efforts growing in intensity as the days and weeks pass. NATO forces are averaging about 450 to 500 missions per day with many of them originating from here at Aviano Air Force Base. The weather, as you can see, is a problem, but we are still seeing flights take off on regular intervals. The activity at the base is less than we expected, perhaps keeping a low profile after yesterday's mistaken bombing of a civilian convoy over western Kosovo. Security at the base is tight and we are being given limited photo access and this was not planned this is just like a bonus piece of you know television journalism you're sending your your team right it was a bonus and i always like to try to pick those up when when we would go somewhere might make it easier for someone to sign off on you going to another special project exactly come back with more (laughs) so okay you did wesley clark general wesley clark wasn't there but the airmen were right so uh these are uh this is a little of what we picked up. We we saved this material till we got back, and uh, this is one of the reports we did the day we got back from Italy. Day after day, hundreds of strike aircraft leave Aviano for the Balkans. Rapid military buildup began in mid-February and is hitting its peak now, becoming the largest air war in Europe since 1945. We believe in what we're doing. Uh, we're here to uh, to help NATO stop the atrocities that are going on in Kosovo. I mean, we're, this is not a conflict against the Serbian people. I mean, this is to stop the things that are happening. And as long as it takes, uh, we will be here and we will do it. As the air war intensifies, soldiers here are faced with long working hours and little time to relax. That coupled with the separation from their families can make it harder to keep up morale. Senior Master Sergeant Kathy Oliverio from Sherwood is in her 18th year with the military, with tours including Guam and Operation Southern Watch. Leaving her husband and children never gets any easier. I love you guys and I, I miss you very much. And I'll be home soon, hopefully. And there's more from this trip, right? Well, yeah, we um, had a layover in Brussels of all places, and it was about a 20-hour layover. So we got there about mid-morning, and our next flight wasn't until early the next morning. So we grabbed lunch, 
And then I think, wait a minute, NATO headquarters is here in Brussels. And we were all game to just grab our gear and go and just go knock on the door of NATO? Yes. <laughs> and see what it happens. I mean <laughs> Okay. We never knew what we could get sitting in our hotel room or taking a tour. Uh, sure. Brussels, so we showed up at NATO, and sure enough, there was media everywhere, and uh, we showed our media credentials. They let us in, <laughs> and we go around the media tents, and there we see a guy named Jamie Shea, who at the time you would see on CNN, mm -hmm. I mean, every network. He was the senior spokesman for NATO, so he was doing a live shot. And we just approached him when he finished and asked if we could talk to him. And, you know, it was hometown of President Clinton mm -hmm. and sure, uh, right. Wesley Clark. And so he took us in, showed us all around. We interviewed him. And, well, here's part of that report. Flags fly at the entrance to NATO, now 19 members strong. This is the political headquarters of the Multination Alliance. Some 2,600 people are employed here, and since the war began, the media presence has increased tenfold. This NATO briefing room provides the backdrop for the release of information on the war, and since the situation is rapidly changing, a spokesman must stay available for updates daily. The duty belongs to this man, 45-year-old British native Jamie Shea. He is a familiar face on television and speaks many different languages. Journalists send his words across the globe. We caught up with Shea after he finished a meeting with the Security Council. He says systematic bombings are wearing down the Yugoslav army. Every day when Milosevic wakes up, he has lost another 30 tanks, another 30 artillery pieces. He has lost more lines of communication. He has lost more of his air defense. And he knows that NATO is becoming stronger while he is becoming weaker. So we had that going. Um, and it just sort of started to feed on itself because we found a class in Little Rock that one of the assignments, they had, the teacher had seen our reports about the airmen and how much they missed home and enjoyed getting letters. So there was this class project that the kids would write letters. And so, well, here's this report. Arkansas airmen stationed overseas don't know it yet, but they will soon be getting more letters from home. Channel 7 is teaming up with Little Rock Air Force Base to invite all Arkansas students to send the troops helping the NATO effort in Yugoslavia their best wishes. Steve Powell reports now from the front line along Route 7. Okay, boys and girls, today we're going to talk about uh, the war in Kosovo, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be in a foreign land. America's greatest gift to this generation may be that they have to be taught about the ugliness of battle, the stark realities of ethnic cleansing and civilian casualties are comfortably a world away. The real horrors of war are only hinted at through the flaming flicker of the nightly news. You went to Nepal. Yes, that was uh, that was quite a trip. Um, and again, it's it's sort of an Arkansas influence that gets you there. Well, every story had to have an Arkansas sure. tie. We weren't just going for the <laughs> sake know, of yeah, going, right. but you know. Uh, Fair to say that it would be the tie that would come first, rather than you sitting around going wonder how I can get to Waikiki. Exactly. Right. 
We had this relationship with Winrock International. Uh, it was a nonprofit organization worldwide that was based in Arkansas. And this was a program in Nepal that was run by Winrock, and they uh, enlisted the help. And you, most of the people that would go were volunteers. They would pay their way. And this was a guy named Ed Levi from Mountain View, Arkansas. Stone County. Yes. And he had a special talent that uh, sent him to Nepal. He doesn't speak the language, and his hometown of Mountain View, Arkansas, is quite literally on the other side of the world. But yet they've walked hours to hear him. They will follow him wherever he goes. In short, this visit from Ed Levi has this village buzzing. And we open the hive gently. This is the kind of help beekeeper Ed Levi is offering, hands-on. And in his line of work, that's not always easy. It's real hard for them to get technical assistance here. And so that's where Farmer to Farmer comes in, is they're able to... Farmer to Farmer is the name of the program that's responsible for bringing Ed together with these brand new beekeepers. It's run by Winrock International. Farmers like Ed volunteer the time, and Winrock pays the way. Before Ed's initial trip here, these farmers knew little about bees and honey. But now, with just a little guidance, all the mountains seem to be breaking out in hives. And, and, and this one led to another... Is that uh, yeah, there was another one of those layover stories. Um, I was with Steve Powell uh, and Tim Hamilton, photographer, who's now uh, a uh, professor at uh, Harding. Mm. And Harding and Searcy, not Florence. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, he teaches uh, broadcast journalism. But in this Nepal trip, we had a layover in Bangkok, Thailand. And before we had left, we knew we were going to have this layover. And, you know, we've talked about Jim Rankino. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, he was from Arkadelphia. He was the political uh, analyst. Well, his son, Tony, still works at Channel 7, but he was there years ago. And he knew of a guy uh, named Rabu Rogers, who was from Arkadelphia, was the author of Young Adult novels mm -hmm. but he had he and his wife had packed up and moved to bangkok where he was gonna write but that he didn't like doing that so he started this unique business this is great and uh we spent the day with him during this layover in thailand and uh he had a coffee company Location isn't the reason Rabu Rogers of Arkadelphia, Arkansas has been grinding away at his gourmet coffee business here for the last two and a half years. In fact, barely anybody drinks coffee in Thailand. I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and think, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? It's a business strategy that may defy conventional wisdom. But in case you haven't noticed, this former English major at Washita Baptist 
is anything but conventional. Actually, when I built my first coffee roaster, I had never really seen a, a, a real coffee roaster. When Rabu and his wife Becky came here 15 years ago, it wasn't to sell coffee. Rabu was a published author of three young adult novels. He wanted to write one based here. Thank you for this trip. You know what we'll talk about next week? Uh, it's okay if you don't. Well, you no, I mean, think about it. we could talk about uh, covering the presidential election. You've done that. What that was like. KTV In 1992, times, the Clinton's first campaign, um, I was assigned to cover his campaign from start to finish. So I was there from October of 91 until the end of January in 93 when he was inaugurated. You're going to have to write this book. I'm going to keep harping on that. All right. If you want to do that next week, we'll do that next week. Hey, if if not, you know, no more Randy Dixon show. No. I'll, you know, I'll well. quit talking about myself. Randy Dixon, who I will talk about right now, is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. We'll see you next Monday, no matter what we're talking about. Right. Thank you, Randy. Thanks. You can see each of the special reports Randy Dixon and Kyle just talked about in their entirety by clicking on the KATV Collection section at Pryor Center. Dot uark dot edu, then hitting the Special Assignment tab. I'm Joy McGowan. I'm Denisha Simpson. And, and we, we are Resilient, Resilient Black, Black Women. Women. On the next Resilient Black Women, Joy and Denisha speak with Dr. Gabby, a gynecologist based in the UK, who is addressing the root cause of gynecology disease, a disease that disproportionately affects Black women, Black women also experience higher rates of infertility, maternal mortality, and higher hysterectomy rates compared to women of other races. So that's how I've ended up on this mission to save black women's wombs with a pervasive problem where black women are disproportionately affected um, by the burden of gynecology disease. Listen to this and other episodes, one every Friday in the month of March to highlight Black women's health. For free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, it is spring break. It sure is. For many people. Yeah, not necessarily for us. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, But there are things to do. To do, uh, tomorrow and the day after, if mm-hmm. you're interested. Tomorrow, uh, Botanical Garden of the Ozarks, holding a workshop about how to grow a strawberry bed. That sounds like a lot of fun, and, you know. I did once, and then the birds, I could <laughs> I want to know how to keep the birds away from my strawberries. That's next week. That's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, Rogers Historical Museum. Again, I think this is with um, Spring Break in mind, uh-huh. and this is for... All ages, we'll say. Uh, they have a program called Blind Cavefish and Bats and Stalactites. Oh, my. Tight to the top, right? You're right. That's it. Yeah. At, okay. they're, they're at the top of the cave. And stalagmites? I forget what the phrase is for that. Might but. be coming up from the <laughs> floor. I don't know. Also, uh, all this week, beginning, uh, including tomorrow, there was a Harry Potter movie marathon at the Bentonville Public Library that's going on every day uh, during this week of spring break. And let me tell you that. Wednesday night, Mm -hmm. yes, Wednesday night, uh, Shiloh Museum is having a program devoted to the petticoat government that developed in Winslow, uh, allegedly the first city anywhere in the United States to have all elected women. I'll be. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Maude Duncan, I think, was the mayor. All right. Yeah. Nice. 
That's tomorrow night at the Shiloh Museum in Springdale. Fresh from being named Best Theater of 2021 by the New York Times, Theater Squared presents Sanctuary City on stage through April 9th. This play features two teenagers struggling to navigate two kinds of unreciprocated love, the kind they feel for each other and the kind they feel as immigrants for their adopted country. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering the nationally recognized Hendricks Odyssey program, which ensures students complete three or more hands-on learning experiences, from internships and undergraduate research to service opportunities and study abroad programs. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is providing access to surgically implanted contraceptive devices to low-income postpartum patients under a special initiative now in its second year. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The increasing equity and access to contraception in Arkansas initiative led by UAMS, provides long-acting, reversible contraceptive devices and birth control implants to uninsured women who've just given birth. The program's aim is to reduce unintended pregnancies, says Nirvana Manning, MD, chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UAMS and service fund director for women's health. So short interval pregnancies, and I'll say clinically speaking, are pregnancies that usually occur within 12 to 18 months of the delivery of the last pregnancy. Um, And so some of those happen because patients want very short intervals between their pregnancies. I will say most of those happen more, um, and I'll put in quotes, accidentally. Um, It was that they didn't think they could get pregnant. They... Um, We're not trying to get pregnant. Some people will swear that their doctors told them that there's no way they could get pregnant during, you know, the postpartum period, during breastfeeding, during any of those kind of subsequent things, or that they didn't have access to reliable contraception or that that contraception that they used was um, either used incorrectly, used irregularly, or not used as the manufacturer would have intended for it. Manning says intrauterine devices and birth control implants are reliable, effective, and safe, and removes risks associated with user error. These intrauterine devices um, are small, probably about an inch and a half, in length and very slim um, are placed within the uterine cavity. Now, long-acting reversible contraception covers two different kinds of contraception. There's the IUDs, which is the one that I explained to you. Those can have hormones or no hormones in them. And then there's also a device that can be placed in the arm, um, and those go by the name of Nexplanon. And they have variable lengths of time with which they work, anywhere from three to 10 years, depending on the device that you get placed. Insertions can cost more than $3,000, covered by most insurance, but in Arkansas, not by Medicaid. To assist low-income women, 
many who are racially and ethnically diverse. UAMS has raised $775,000 in grant funds over the past two years to supply devices to as many as 746 patients in birthing units at UAMS in Little Rock and Fort Smith, as well as Baptist Health in Fort Smith. It's been life-changing for a lot of these women. It allows them the autonomy to kind of control what their reproductive um, choices are going forward. The initiative will provide scientific data to expand access to contraceptives to all patients, regardless of insurance coverage, Manning says. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Tomorrow on Ozarks, work centered at the University of Arkansas to help people get a sense of touch back. You know, we had read about people uh, saying that, oh, yeah, we got, you know, because of other research studies. But this happened in front of us. So the very first time when we had put an implant into somebody who had lost a limb, and when we gave him the stimulation and he, he could, you know, first it was like it's a missing limb, and then he held his wife's hand. And, and just that whole emotional thing for us to see his experience. That story and much more tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Arts Series presents La Dama, Thursday, March 30th at 7 p.m. La Dama brings together four Latin American women who blend traditional music from Venezuela, Brazil, and Colombia with elements of soul, R&B, and pop, performed in Spanish, English, and Portuguese. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. A bit of shop talk. After 41 years reporting for NPR, Sylvia Pajoli is retiring. She is the longest-serving reporter on the International Desk. Her work has earned her a Peabody Award, a National Women's Political Caucus Radcliffe College Exceptional Merit Media Award, and the Silver Angel Excellence in the Media Award. Pajoli was part of the NPR team that won the 2000 Overseas Press Club Award for coverage of the war in Kosovo. She will sit down for a farewell interview with Scott Simon on Weekend Edition this Saturday. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkin Songs. Johnny Cash has fans across the genres and the generations. Born in South Arkansas and raised in Northeast Arkansas, few artists command broader recognition than Johnny Cash. An influence worldwide, Cash's own earliest musical influence was close to home. His mom. The sadness of his eyes revealed Cash was born 1932 in Cleveland County, the same place where his parents, Carrie and Ray, were from, as well as his grandparents. His birth name wasn't actually Johnny, but J.R., initials which didn't stand for anything. J.R. grew up singing, with particular encouragement from his mom, who was born Carrie Rivers, March 13, 1904, and raised in the Pentecostal Church of God. Nothing but the howling wind and the driving rain so cold. Beyond her own personal musical contributions to her son, in 1936, Carrie Cash also pushed the impoverished family to get an extravagance, a radio from Sears Roebuck. It offered the diversion of music and dreams of a world beyond fieldwork. Johnny Cash would have been only four years old, but he remembered the first song he ever heard on the radio, Hobo Bill's Last Ride by Jimmy Rogers. Radio was how they first learned of President Franklin Roosevelt's government land program, launching in northeast Arkansas called the Dice Colony. The Cashes were approved for the whites-only New Deal program and moved from the Kingsland, Arkansas area to join it. On Jordan Storm.
stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. For the arduous winter drive north on rough roads, Carrie Cash and the children slept in the back of the truck hauling the family's possessions. Johnny later said, I am bound for the promised land was the first song he ever sang. It was as the family migrated to Dice. Sometimes mama would cry and sometimes she'd sing, he recalled of the journey. And sometimes it was hard to tell which was which. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Carrie Cash called her son's affinity for singing and music the gift. As with the radio, she pushed for another extravagance, a piano, which the family sang around. In a famous family story, Carrie tried to get him voice lessons, but the teacher didn't want to spoil the child's natural talents with training. She also showed her son guitar basics. When Johnny Cash was a teen working in the fields, he was given an extra 15 minutes break at midday so he could listen to the Leuven Brothers' High Noon Roundup on WMPS in Memphis. At night, he'd listen to stations in New Orleans, Cincinnati, Chicago, and Wheeling, West Virginia. He'd later make his own radio debut on KLCN in Blyville, Arkansas. Cash listened to the expected country forefathers like the Leuvens, Roy Acuff, Ernest Tubb, Eddie Arnold, and Hank Williams heard earlier, but also to pop crooner Bing Crosby, bluesman Pink Anderson, and fellow Arkansas-er Rosetta Tharp, a gospel guitarist, one of Cash's lifelong favorites. There are some people who say we cannot tell. After Johnny's voice changed, Carrie said his voice sounded exactly like her father's, John Lewis Rivers. Born 1866, Carrie's dad and Johnny's maternal grandfather taught the shape note system in four-part harmony singing in church. As Cash began performing as a musician, his early sets included songs by Red Foley and gospel like Peace in the Valley. Cash and the Tennessee Two first auditioned at Sun Records with their version of Jimmy Davis and the Sunshine Boys, then current gospel hit, I Was There When It Happened. The very moment he forgave me. Label owner Sam Phillips didn't like it and told Cash to come back with something more original. That he did. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black. Why you never see bright colors on my back. Carrie Cash furthered and supported her son's career in other ways beyond her enormous musical influence on him. She even made his initial flashy stage outfits. In fact, Carrie didn't like her son, the man in black, to wear the black onstage clothing that became his trademark. As a lifelong music lover, Carrie must have been pleased to see the pinnacle of fame her son achieved with The Gift, especially since she was the first one to see it and the first one to nurture it. Carrie Rivers Cash, better known as Johnny Cash's mom, died March 11, 1991, just shy of her 87th birthday. Her piano still sits in the family home, both restored by Arkansas State University. Here's Johnny Cash, son of Carrie and Ray Cash, all of Cleveland County, Arkansas, with the first song Cash ever sang, I Am Bound for the Promised Land. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. 
I'm bound for the promised land Oh, who will come and go with me I am bound for the promised land O'er all those wide extended plains Shines one eternal day There God the sun forever reigns And scatters night away I am bound for the promised land I'm bound for the promised land Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? I am bound for the promised land I'm bound for the promised land Oh, who will come and go with me I am bound for the promised land I am bound for the promised land by Johnny Cash The first song he ever sang It's another song of Arkansas From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansongs since 1998. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Jane, Missouri. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Randy Dixon, Stephen Cook, and Jacqueline Froelich. Our theme is titled First Hurrah, and it's written and performed by Daryl Sean. His latest CD is titled Still Here. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Do you think you'll... You and Timothy are hosting tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. We haven't decided which studio we'll produce it in, but Timothy and I will figure that out, and you'll get to hear where we did it tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks uh, so much for covering for me tomorrow. Um Great game this weekend. It was. Not a lot much of fun. To say, but a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Play again Thursday night. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks, Thanks. for listening.